Please remain standing as we um, read the scripture text this morning. If uh, you want to look in your Bible, it's Isaiah 11, 10 to chapter 12, verse 6. Um, in the Pew Bible, it's page 576. Um, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, Isaiah 11, starting in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank uh, Thank you. Please be seated. And uh, if you would pray with me. Father, we're uh, so grateful for the privilege to be here and to sit under your word. Uh, it is alive, it's powerful, it cuts us and it heals us. Um, it shows us our Savior. And uh, we are so, so grateful to be here. Thank you for this body. Uh, we thank you for, I thank you for what it's meant in my life uh, and the life of my family. Thank you for the, the work of this church in this community. And uh, we thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the body of Christ here and all around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that um, this is the first time, my first time in this pulpit since I worked here 18 years ago. And I know that a lot of you have no idea who I am. Well, maybe you know who I am, but... Um, it's, um, I wanted to give you a little, a little background because I'm, I'm very grateful to this congregation, um, you know, for giving me an opportunity. So in, uh, in 2003, uh, we were, we were looking for an opportunity to serve in New England. We had, um, we went to assessment and, um, we were, we were, wanted to be in New England, um, and church planting seemed to be the only way to do it. And so I initially contacted Doug Warren, who was the pastor in Portland at the time, had planted a church there, and 
we, uh, he said, well, we're really, I asked him about Manchester because I lived in Pelham for a while growing up, and he said, well, we're really kind of looking for a more experienced um, planter there, uh, but I don't know, we'll see, we'll talk about it. So my pastor knew Doug Doman, who had planted uh, then First Presbyterian Church of Concord, and um, he agreed to take me on as an apprentice, and so I was provisionally qualified, and I came to First Pres in Concord, and um, we, we packed up our, our Penske truck um, in January of 04, and we were here until we started worship in, in uh, April of 2005. So um, at the time, we had uh, two little boys who were about the size that little Quinn was way back then, and, uh, and now they're, uh, so we have, we have four boys. Uh, Jonathan is married, just got his, his uh, doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, uh, Jacob uh, just graduated his undergrad from Samford, both went to Samford, and Jacob's getting married in July. And then we have a son, Charlie, who's got one more year of high school, and then Hudson, who's 13. And uh, so a lot, uh, a lot has changed. So Chip and I both had a lot less gray hair uh, back then. And uh, but I, I, I want to thank this congregation because um, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever really had an opportunity to do it for, uh, for giving me an opportunity to, to be here to serve, um, to be a part of what God's doing in northern New England. A lot of water under the bridge, um, but God is faithful, amen? <laughs> so it's, uh, it's really a thrill. So when Pear talked about um, doing this pulpit swap, I, um, we have a, so Hudson has special needs. Some of you may know he has Downs and autism, and he's got a lot of, you know, a lot of needs. Um, so I said, you know, possible, um, you know, I'd, li I'd like to minimize the travel. And um, so he said, okay, well, why don't you go to Pembroke and I'll go to Manchester and then Ian can, can go to Lewiston. So I said, wow, yeah, this would be great. Uh, so really, uh, really excited, excited to be here. God, uh, God, is, God is good. So um, let's talk about Isaiah a little bit. I, um, I, don't know, <clears throat> I don't know whether you consider yourself to be musically inclined or not. I'll leave that up to you to decide. Um, but I think all of us know the, the, the power that music has to bring people together. We, uh, you know, we saw this in Living Color three years ago when um, almost, almost literally overnight we had to figure out how to, how to do church on a screen. And I, I remember that feeling. Um, we were actually going to go to a missions conference in Birmingham, and everything just started like falling like dominoes. And uh, next thing I you know, I was standing on the stage, you know, alone, <laughs> facing the screen and trying to do church. It was the strangest thing. Um, but we were what we tried to do was to promote community in the absence of physical presence, which, as we discovered, is really really hard. Um, so I remember coming across a video that, that early early on, probably in March of 2020. And it was put out by a, a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And there was a vocalist and there was a few instrumentalists on, on mandolin, guitar, and xylophone. It's kind of an interesting combination. So they recorded themselves playing, and this was, you know, really new at the time. Uh, they they uh, recorded themselves playing and singing a song. They were all at, each at home in different places. And then they sent their videos and somebody mixed them together. And um, the congregation could then play the song at home. And they could sing along. They could at least get the feeling, you know, for being in community. 
And what the song that they, this is why I'm bringing this up, the song that they put together was the first song of Isaiah. And it comes from Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 6, which I just read. And uh, it says, Surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense, and he will be my savior. And, and what, I, what I found to be, in, and it was a wonderful arrangement, this, you know, you have this 10-year-old uh, boy who's playing the xylophone. It, it just, it's really amazing. I'd look it up sometime. I think it was Advent Church in Birmingham. But um, what's, what's infinitely more powerful than, than the, you know, the musicians, the arrangement, are, are the words, because it comes from God's word. They, and they, they call us to worship for two reasons. Number one, God loves the world. And number two, God loves me and you. So um, on your outline, if you want to follow along, that's the two reasons that we sing to the Lord. Number one, because he loves the world. So I know you guys haven't been with us in our church. We've been going through Isaiah, and uh, it's, been, it's, it's, you know, it's been a, a challenge. It's really stretched me, but um, we've, had, we've had a really good time. Um, so let me catch you up. So this passage that I just read wraps up chapters 6 through 12. So this is a section of Isaiah, hangs together, and it starts with Isaiah's call to ministry in chapter 6. He realized he was a sinner, like all of God's people, um, but he experienced payment, atonement. Remember, you get the cold touching his lips, the purging of sin. Um, receives forgiveness, he is rescued. And then he spends chapter 7 to 9 explaining to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of God's people, that um, they needed to trust God, not only to save them from their sins, but to save them from Assyria, which was the bully on the block. That was the superpower. And then he spends chapters 9 and 10 telling Israel the same thing, because, and they were in the same situation, only worse. Um, so last week, last week, sorry, um, I did preach this as a CTR, fair warning. But um, the week before, uh, when we studied chapter 11 at our church, um, we learned how God would rescue people um, and how he would remake the world one day. So he starts, you know, personal, and then he goes to global, because that's what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. So in this passage, Isaiah is calling people to respond to that. How do you respond? Knowing that God saves you, and then one day he saves the world. Well, we'll find out. So verses 10 through 12, I want to focus on this first. We already read it, so I won't read it again, but um, he talks about that day. That, what that means is that's when God creates a new earth. Okay, after Jesus comes back, after the judgment, after Satan gets dealt with, um, God's going to gather believers from all over the world. The root of Jesse, of course, is Jesus. He will be a signal, like a flag that rallies the nations. And um, I, I want to tell you what it means in this context. I always think about Mel Gibson and the Patriot, you know, when he's, he's carrying the the, uh, the flag, and he's trying to get his, all the guys are getting killed left and right, and he grabs the flag, and it's that, you know, that moment when the tide turns, and everybody gets up and, um, and rises to the, to the battle. So um, in chapter 11, it described Jesus as a shoot from Jesse. Now, I know this is kind of confusing. How can Jesus be a shoot from Jesse and the root of Jesse at the same time? Well, funny story, Jesus actually asked a bunch of religious leaders that same question in Matthew 22. He said, how can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? And they looked at him with great confusion and didn't have an answer. 
um, he stumped him. And so then Jesus explained that as a man, he's a descendant of David and Jesse, because Jesse's David's father. As God, he is Lord of David and Lord of Jesse. So Jesus is going to gather people from all nations. Now, why does he say second time? Well, when was the first time? Well, the first time was he gathered his people in the Exodus. He pulled them out of slavery in a foreign land. This time, though, it's going to be massively bigger. Remember that the word remnant <clears throat> refers, I always think about a carpet remnant, because, you know, if you've ever, anybody remember Building 19, that great store that went out of business a long time ago? We still haven't. It's still empty on Hanover Street. Um, they, they, they used to carry carpet remnants. And uh, so, you know, what is a carpet remnant? It's a piece of a larger piece of carpet. Uh, so a remnant is the remainder of true believers in God's people out of all of the, you know, the ethnic Jews who, who identified with God's people. And you could still apply that. You could just apply that to the church today. Um, so you've got a remnant amongst nations all over the world, even though they're a, probably a tiny minority in their own nation. There's a, there, so Isaiah gives us a sampling here. So he mentions a bunch of these nations. Assyria and Egypt are not on the list. They are, well, they're not a part of this, this list of the, of the remnant. They are, they're symbols because Assyria was the contemporary power. They were the superpower of that day, of Isaiah's day. Egypt was the ancient superpower of, of you know, long before that. So they both had oppressed God's people. Um, and then he lists some of these others. Pathros near Egypt, Cush, Ethiopia were south. Elam and Babylonia, also called Shinar, that was east. Hamath was north. And the islands of the sea were west. So what's Isaiah saying? It doesn't matter what direction you go. It doesn't matter how far God's people are scattered. He will always find them. And isn't that, isn't that good news? <laughs> um, that's, he will always bring them home. That's the beauty of the diversity of the body of Christ. God's people were never, ever, ever meant to be just ethnic Jews or any, from any one nation at all. They were always meant to be a mosaic of, of, of many nations and many skin colors. So uh, here's a question, though. Why did he call Babylon Shinar? You know, Babylon was a rising superpower. They were, um, everybody knew who Babylon was. If he'd used the word Babylon, of course they would know. But what, what does he mean by Shinar? Well, Babylon was built on the ancient site of Shinar, as recorded in Genesis 11. This is where the Tower of Babel was built. And so the reason Isaiah uses that name is he's hearkening back to this, you know, this place, this symbol of man's self-sufficiency. Because what did they say in Genesis 11? Hey, we're going to build this tower to heaven. In other words, we want to rule the world. We want to be in charge. We want to be God. And so could it be that God is telling his people with this reference that no human power, no matter how powerful, no matter how arrogant, can stop his plan to rescue his people. I'll go with that. All right, so not only does God's love for the world showcase the beauty of diversity, but also the power of unity. So this is, uh, this is verses 13 through 16. Now, David, King David um, had ruled over a united Israel for four, about 40 years. During the time that he was king, that unity carried through pretty much till the end of the reign of his son Solomon, about 70 years in total. That was the only 70 years that those people had been united. In fact, even when David was king, it was a little dicey at times. Um, and 
So they were not that way before, and they were not that way after. Why? They fought like cats and dogs. They couldn't get along. We've learned pretty well from them as the church, haven't we? <laughs> Considering, think about how many, how many church splits you've either been a part of or known about in the time that you've been alive. No, don't think about that. Let's think about something else. Um, but the, the problem in, uh, you know, amongst God's people was everybody wanted to be first. Everybody wanted to get the credit. So it, Isaiah says in that day, all the rivalry in the body of Christ is going to be gone. They will have a powerful and enduring unity. Now, in verse 14, I admit it, does, it kind of sounds like God's people are going to make war on the nations, right? Um, and defeat them. And the truth is, David did that. He made war on a number of nations around them. God had told the, the people of God to do that. Back in Joshua's day, they said, hey, don't make treaties with the nations around you. You can make treaties with people far away. The nations around you, that's part of your inheritance. You need to defeat them. And David did that. Um, it tells us that in 2 Samuel 5 through 10. But this is a different kind of conquest that Isaiah is talking about here. Think about the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6. So in, when you read Ephesians 6, it talks about, you know, shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet shod with the gospel. Did I forget any? Okay, I got them all. So when you read about the spiritual armor in uh, Ephesians 6, you know that it's spiritual armor. You don't think that you're supposed to go buy a Kevlar vest and go make war on your neighbors, right? You do know that. Nod your head, please. Don't anybody go and make war on your neighbors. Especially, don't tell Ian I told you to do that. Um, so what, what, what is happening here? <clears throat> this is, you know, Ephesians 6 is spiritual armor. Isaiah is saying the same thing here. How are God's people going to conquer the nations? Well, through the gospel. Now, this gets fulfilled in Acts chapter 15 in the New Testament. This is where early on in the, in the uh, story of the church, the, they're arguing because the day of Pentecost was an amazing thing. And remember, you had 3,000 people that became believers, and they were from all over, the, all over the, the Middle East, what we call the Middle East now, but they were Jews. And so the people of Israel really, the, God's people, thought the good news was for the Jews. I mean, Jesus even said to the Syro-Phoenician woman, we talked about this last week, um, when she said, please heal my daughter, he said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And, and uh, he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she said, but even the, do even the dogs lick the crumbs from under the table. And he was moved by her faith. Why? Because it wasn't what he was saying wasn't God's plan. It was, he was talking about his stage in redemption history. It was always God's purpose for people from all nations um, to be a part of the body. But that's what they had to figure out in Acts 15. How did they figure it out? They have all these Gentiles coming into the church, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? And so James stands up at this, play, at this, this gathering, and he says, this is, the will, this is God's will. How do I know? Amos 9. Amos 9 says, I will restore David's fallen tent so that the nations, to con you know, the nations will be conquered. He's talking about God conquering people's hearts through the gospel. Always meant that from the very beginning. So um, that's, that's how James interprets Amos, and we follow James in how we interpret Isaiah in this passage here. <clears throat> now, verse 15, Isaiah's recalling the Exodus. So um, remember, the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, they got to the Red Sea, and um, there was something in the way. 
a lot of water. And um, there was no way across. So God sent a wind, divided the waters, made a way for them to walk across in sandals. So here he's using that as an analogy. In that day, God used his wind. So the Hebrew word for wind is ruach. It's also the Hebrew word for spirit. So he used his wind to get the people out of Egypt. He says in that day coming, when he remakes the world, he's going to use his wind, his breath, his spirit, to get his people into, onto a new earth. Um, Now, one little detail I want to mention. If you have a New International Version, it says in verse 15 that the Lord will dry up the tongue of the sea of Egypt. Kind of an odd expression. Um, But the word is actually the Hebrew haram, which means to utterly destroy. And that shows up over and over and over, Exodus through Joshua, um, to describe how God's enemies deserved his judgment. Egypt had enslaved his people, you know, for hundreds of years before that. Assyria was doing it in Isaiah's day right now, just like we mentioned a a little while ago. They thought they had a power. They They thought they had all the power. And so what Isaiah is saying is that spirit of arrogance was going to meet its end. That, the, the spirit of arrogance was not going to win, um, and, and it, along with every demonic power in history, God will rescue his people, and he did it. Jesus himself said it in John 12, 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. How was Jesus lifted up? Well, he was lifted up on the cross, right? He was lifted up in the resurrection when he rose again from the dead. He was lifted up in the ascension when he ascended to heaven to sit at God's right hand. And so in that work, he rescues all his people from all over the world, from many you know, peoples and languages and nations and tongues and races. He is the signal. He's the banner for the peoples. This makes me think about um, uh, this story about uh, Francis Scott Key, who, who uh, wrote our national anthem. He was, uh, when he wrote it, he was a prisoner on a British ship in the War of 1812, and uh, witnessed this barrage of Fort McHenry, which I always think about when I go through the Fort McHenry Tunnel when I'm going south. Um, but he's, he has to watch this, you know, what he, he has no idea how the battle's going to come out. Um, he's watching the, them, them destroy this fort and does not know if the fort's going to survive, does not know if the, if the, the, the nation's going to survive. This is 1812. I mean, we were, we were like a pea shooter next to the British Empire. Um, But when the smoke clears in the morning, what gave him the answer? It was the flag, the banner. And there's a parallel here. As God's people, we have an enemy that just unloads his attacks on his people day in and day out. And uh, I tell you, I've I've come to realize that in church planting. Um, And and I I realized, I I was surprised by some things. I, I... I always kind of thought, you know, when I came back to pagan New England, that, that, that all the non-Christians were going to be making war on us, you know, that the government was going to be after us, and, you know, people were, and uh, that's not actually what happened. The, the attacks did come, but they came from inside the church. That was not expected. But, you know, that's a part, that's one of the forms that, that Satan's attacks take uh, in a broken world. So this is a, you know, this is a reality. So you have some attacks that are blatant, you know, particularly in nations of the, of the world that are closed, that are not, you know, where the gospel isn't protected, churches aren't protected, um, but sometimes they're a lot more subtle. 
But no matter how brutal the attacks, we don't have to wonder whether God's people will survive, right? God's kingdom will endure. And here's, here's the important thing. Remember, we are not called to win the war. God's going to win the war. We're called to be faithful, to stay at our post. And sometimes that's a really hard thing to do. All right, second reason we have to sing to the Lord is because he loves me. This is where Isaiah gets more personal. Um, now, it's possible that Isaiah himself is speaking here, uh, might, might be somebody else, but I think it is him. Um, he's probably thinking about his own experience of his own conversion. Um, and it makes me think of the Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 8, where he's talking about how God knew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, he glorified us. You know, he's talking about the future, but he uses it in the past tense. Um, and then he says, after all that, he says, what then shall we say to these things? How do we respond to this amazing act of God rescuing his people from all over the world? We sing. Now, I know you say, listen, John, this is not fair because you, you know, you're a music person. You know, you like to sing. I don't like to sing. I realize that, but you know what? God commands us to sing. So, so there's that. So that means you have to. So you, all you people want to be motivated by guilt. There you go. Guilt. Sing. Um, no, we're, we, th that actually is not, you know, that is not the motivation. Look at, look at verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. So these verses, they're in the first person singular. Um, you know, whether it's Isaiah or somebody else doesn't matter. The, the point is that, that God saves individuals. So he's focusing on the individual here. Then he'll get to the corporate. But uh, just like the, in the Exodus, he led the people of Israel out of Egypt as a group. But think about when they celebrated the Passover, they had to kill the lambs individually, at least the heads of the households. Had to, they had to kill the lambs. It wasn't the, whole, it wasn't the head of the, you know, it wasn't the priest that was going to do that. They had to kill the lamb. They had to put the blood on the doorpost, on, on the lintels and the sides of the doorpost. They had to accept um, God's sacrifice. And Isaiah had done that back in, in, in uh, chapter 6. This is his testimony. But this is not just his testimony. This is my testimony. And this is your testimony if you're trusting in Christ. So we get, a, we get a picture of salvation itself. First, it's God's work. God was angry with us because of our sin. He had good reason, but his anger turned away. Why? Because he poured out his wrath. I heard you talking about that in Sunday school. He poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross, even though we deserved it. That's why we can say in response, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. Isaiah doubles up on God's name. He says literally, Yahweh, Yah just to emphasize it, to show respect, but also intimacy. He uses the, an archaic version of the word song that harkens back to Exodus 15, when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And Miriam, Moses' sister, is leading all the women in, uh, in singing and praising the Lord. Alec Motyer points out that the objective mark of salvation is strength, durability in the face of life, and its subjective counterpart is song, the inner welling up of joy. It's, Exodus 15 is Moses' song. 2 Corinthians 12.9 is Paul's song, right? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
It's also a song we haven't heard yet. Revelation 14, too. This is a song that we're going to learn on the new heavens and the new earth. That's one of the reasons it's good for congregations to learn new songs. So this is what Isaiah has been pounding over and over in his sermons to God's people. Is God enough? See, he asked the people, because these, these were the gods of, 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 uh, around them. Why do you need God plus Baal? Why do you need God plus Moloch? Why do you need God plus Chemosh? Because that's what they were doing. They weren't rejecting God outright. They were saying, well, let's just sort of combine them together because then I can get God and then I can get, you know, the storm God because I really want my crops to do well in the, sto- in the storm. He said, why isn't God enough for you? He is Yahweh. I am. And, and this is what he says to us. Why do you need God plus financial security? Why do you need God plus well-behaved children who don't embarrass you? Why do you need God plus a career where you're respected? Why do you need God plus the respect of your classmates? Is God enough? Is he alone enough? Rest in him because he is. So God saves us individually but he also places us within a family, within a corporate unit. And that together witnesses to his majesty. This is focused on verses uh, 3 to 6 in, in chapter 12. The you and, so verses 1 and 2 are singular. Verses, uh, the the uh, you in verse 3 is plural. So now he's talking to the community of God's people, the church, you could say, our, uh, in, in our context. Um, so notice, uh, notice what Isaiah tells us about singing and worship. In, uh, in verses 4 to 6, I'll just read that part. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord he has done gloriously, let this be made known in all the earth, shout, sing for joy, great is your, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Um, what does that say about why we sing? Is it about how I feel? Is it about how God makes me feel? It is about what you think about how I feel. (laughs) Is it about me at all? No. No, it's not. Think about how many modern worship songs that are sung in the church that focus on self. And that's that's not what it's about at all. That's not scripture. That's culture. We live in a narcissistic age. I know, we look around at a lot of our politicians. We say, man, what a bunch of narcissists. Well, it's kind of encouraged. Um, but the, the, you know this this is this is what our culture wants. But this is not this is not uh, the Bible. Isaiah says, "Sing, for He has done gloriously. Great is the Holy One. He's He's not." And and this is not that God is down on emotion, right? Okay, we Presbyterians we could all use to branch out a little bit emotionally. All right, Amen. <laughs> I know. I, our church, you know, we do. You know, we all have this. We, 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 could, we could all stretch in that area, no question. Um, but worship is, not, worship is not a celebration of our emotion, right? Worship can entail emotion. Certainly, you know, God gave us emotions. That's a good thing. But worship is not a celebration of our emotion. It's a celebration of Him. And yes, you can do that with emotion. We celebrate what He has done in saving us, and we spread it everywhere we know. Why? Because He did it. Now, look at verse 6. 
The last part um, gives us the motivation for our worship. It gives us the motivation for our witness. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God, God has always been about dwelling with His people. Um, he was with them in the garden, right? He walked with them. He talked with them. Then He had to cast them out because of the fall, because of their sin. But ever since, God has been working His plan to be together with His people again. How do we know that? Well, in the, in the wilderness, where did he set the tabernacle? In the middle of the people. All of the people's tents were around the tabernacle. Quinn learned that in Bible class. Um, and then it, when you look in the, in the New Testament, John 1 says he tabernacled amongst us in Jesus. Jesus, the word became flesh, lived among people. He preached among people. He talked, he walked, he healed amongst the people. Um, John 14 says that God makes his home with us in the spirit. In an even, you know, so you, in this progress of redemption, it gets more and more intimate and more and more personal and more and more developed. That's what the covenant of, of that's what the new covenant's all about. And on the new earth, it's going to be completed. God will be with us. We will be with him in a way that nobody ever has been. Zechariah 2, 10 and 11 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. See, that's what we long for now. And we get it in little snippets. We get it a little bit here on Sunday morning, here at a picnic, here, you know, when you're having a sweet time together in a Bible study, whatever. There we're going to be living it. Ray Ortland tells the story of how um, in 1993, there were three New Tribes mission missionaries that were kidnapped in Colombia, um, South America, by terrorists. And for eight years, their families and their friends had no idea what had happened to them. Um, they prayed, they wondered, they worried, and eventually they, uh, they did find out that the men had been killed. And Dan German uh, was, the, was the NTM director, director in Colombia at the time. And in an interview, he said, he described how their prayers changed through the eight years. He said at the beginning, um, you know, of course, we were praying that God would bring him home safely, and, and we believed that he would. You know, that's a biblical thing. You know, think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, God can deliver us, and he will, but even if he doesn't, he's still God, and they believe that. But he said later on, we began, we sort of changed them, and, and we began to pray, God, we have no idea what's become of them, but even, even if you don't bring them home, you're still God. And he said there's a very special sense of awe at who God is and how sufficient he is when the miracle doesn't happen. When the wonder, but the wonder of his sufficiency is still present. And that's really true, isn't it? Because the miracle doesn't always happen. Finan you know, healing doesn't always come. Financial freedom doesn't always materialize. A happy ending is not always what God has in store. And the truth is, generally in life, it's not a happy ending, right? We get older. We, our, our bodies break down. I'm trying to give my dog a bath at Agway the other day, and I, I pulled a muscle trying to get her into the... I mean, she is 85 pounds, but I thought, goodness, I'm getting old. I don't like this. Um... But that's, that is the norm. I'm not saying that we cannot have joy amidst trials, but the human experience is 
it's not a fairy tale. And, and, and oftentimes we don't see these, these great and miraculous answers. And, but yet God is still God. And, and Ray Orland points out, this is the triumph of grace. Well, you might say, well, that doesn't feel like a triumph to me. I don't know about you. But it is his triumph. God, and this is what Ortland said, God is God. Our living and our dying take on a very special sense of awe, no matter what price we pay to spread his song. His cause is the one cause on earth that will finally succeed. Isn't that true? And that's what drives everything that we do. I started out talking about a, um, this, this virtual worship video I watched in, uh, in 2020. I want to close with another. Um, I remember during that time watching this, I don't remember how I, somebody sent me a link or, or something. Maybe I just stumbled across it, but there was a video that a church put together of uh, a song by Andrew Peterson called, Is He Worthy? And um, it starts out with one person singing, and then there's a second person, and then the third person and it kind of bop-bops around to different people's screens because they're all recording this, of course, in their homes, which all of us were. And, um, and then, you, you know, you have a couple over here and then a family over here, and, and then it kind of grows. And then they'll take five screens and then ten, and, and some of them are playing instruments. Most of them are not. Some of them are professional musicians. A lot of them are not. They're just regular people. Um, and this was a large church, but this, by, the, by the end of the song, there were 70 people, I counted them, on screens, on this, um, you know, in this, this musical, this song. And I don't care how big that church was, you didn't have 70 people on Sunday morning leading worship. It, it would be a little, you know, full. These were, these were just regular people. And, and uh, so every one of them, again, there, there's such a lesson here. Every one of them had to record their song individually. Then they send it away. And the, through the magic of musical editing, it all fits together. All the beats line up. But that doesn't happen automatically. <laughs> so it takes somebody a lot of work to do that. If, you, if you've done that, you know. Um, but at the end, they could hear this virtual choir singing. Is he worthy? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll. The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. He is worthy of this. He is. You see, the other part of this that's it's an illustration for us is that all, all these people were cut off from one another, and they got to see all of their individual songs unite in one great song. And, and that's a picture of what the new earth will be like. Because we've all been cut off by space or by time or by death. When we left South Carolina, we, um, you know, we left some dear friends. It, was, it, was a, it really hurt. It was a loss. And then we came here and we made great friends at First Prez. And then we had to go start CTR. And we had to leave, you know, that was a loss. That was really tough. I wanted to take you guys with me, but I wasn't allowed to because Doug would have got really mad at me, understandably so. Um, you know, you have dear friends that move away and that's a loss. It hurts. You know, you lose loved ones to, to, to glory it's a loss. That's, that's what makes heaven. I never understood for so long why people are so excited about heaven. And the older I get, now I'm starting to understand. 
in that place, the song of the Lamb will be our great song. And our songs will, you know, our songs here can never hold a candle to that song. But we sing all of our songs here with that song in mind. And sooner than you know it, that day is going to come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, you, you have given us this song in our hearts, and you give us actual songs to express that. But, but one day, we will be not just together with each other, we will be together with you. And we can't even, we can't even fathom that. We can't even understand how that, what that's going to be like. But Lord, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that uh, through the work of Jesus, you put a new song in our mouths and in our hearts. And uh, we, we thank you that one day we'll get to sing it all together. Help us to do everything that we do today in light of that day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.